Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 17 of the War of the Jewels. Uh, before we get going tonight, two quick announcements. First, today is Wednesday, August 23rd. Tomorrow, on the 24th, at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, I'm going to have a little summer update about some exciting things that are happening at Signum University. There's a, there's a lot going on, including a particularly exciting process um, that I would like to tell you guys about and ask for your help with. So um, this is going to be tomorrow evening at 8 p.m. Uh, on August 24th. I'm going to be broadcasting this on our regular channels. Um, I had originally posted a Zoom link, but then I decided, no, I don't want to make this a Zoom meeting. I just want to do a regular broadcast. So if you just come to uh, Twitch or to YouTube, um, you know, the places where you normally come uh, to see the broadcasts, you can uh, you can hear the update. You can join me in my update tomorrow. It, recordings, of course, will also be available um, on Twitch and YouTube after the fact. So, um, um, JJ, will I be on Discord? Yeah, reckon I will, just in case anyone's here. But, um, uh, yeah, just because people tend to kind of show up here now <laughs> whenever I broadcast. So just in case people do, I probably will show up. But I imagine a lot of people will be uh, joining me on uh, on Twitch chat and YouTube chat there. So, um, anyway. So that's the first announcement that's happening tomorrow, Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, the second announcement is the beginning time for our next discussion. So we are almost at the end of The War of the Jewels. Uh, and we are going to be begin Our next book, as I announced previously, is going to be Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. I am so excited to talk about Till We Have Faces. Uh, Till We Have Faces is, in my opinion the greatest, and it isn't close, of C.S. Lewis's fictional works. Big C.S. Lewis fan myself, Till We Have Faces is the greatest fictional work he ever wrote. It is phenomenal. And I'm, uh, I'm really excited to talk about it. We've, we've, um, we've been flirting with Till We Have Faces for a long time. Till We Have Faces has been a finalist uh, in our Mythgard Academy voting on multiple occasions. But... Um, uh, but it's never won. So now um, uh, it has finally won. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about Till We Have Faces at last. Um, and um, OK, so that is what we're going to start. And we are going to start it on the 20th of September. Um, that had been my plan to take a, uh, have a, a couple weeks break between the end of this discussion and the beginning of that one. Um, so it'll be on the 20th, Wednesday, the 20th of September, right before uh, Cascade Moot. Uh, so I'll be getting on a plane for, uh, for Portland soon after that. Um, but anyway, um, the 20th of September is going to be our first session. And it's fortunate that uh, I I did schedule some extra weeks off because although I have been planning all along that this would be, uh, we would have one session on the uh, Quendi and Eldar, uh, you know, part four of the War of the Jewels, uh, I doubt, I now very sincerely doubt that that's going to happen. I'm almost positive I am not going to get through it all tonight. Um, and I have a good reason for this. Well, okay. 
I have an explicable reason for this. It's a more or less respectable reason. Um, the primary reason I was originally projecting to only do one class on all this is I am not an expert on Tolkien's languages. Um, and a lot of this stuff, especially the early parts um, of the uh, Quentin Eldar section, which are very heavily etymological and talking about roots and the, the changes of stuff over time, I, I get I get lost a little bit. Um, and I certainly am not very well qualified to answer people's questions about that. I would add, by the way, um, that if you are interested to get more in-depth on this section with somebody who knows much more about language than I do, uh, languages in general, philology in particular, Tolkien languages, Tolkien's languages, invented languages in specific, I would urge you uh, in November to sign up for um, uh, for James Tauber's uh, space module on the War of the Jewels. So he has been, throughout this calendar year of 2023, he has been going through um, the uh, History of Middle-Earth one, uh, one volume a month um, in our space program. Um, James is going to be covering the War of the Jewels in November, as I say, and that's Obviously, that's coming. It's actually coming up sooner than you might think. Um, uh, that uh, that that module will be will begin um, uh, taking nominations and stuff. Anyway, it's going to be coming up pretty soon. James is the person to ask your linguistic questions to, and he'll be able to address all these things uh, a little bit more. So, okay. Anyway, that's um, so. As I said, when I was looking at it, I'm like, okay. So I think I'm not going to try to get into too much detail here, here's going to be my plan. I said to myself, here's going to be my plan for talking about the Quendi and Eldar section. What I want to do is I want to just kind of read through it and I'm not going to try to follow. I'm not going to be able to talk about the linguistic stuff. I'm, I'm just, I'm just not. But what I want to try to do is kind of follow along as much as we can, like see what snippets we can, uh, we can uh, draw from it. And the sort of snippet that I was looking for, I was pretty clear. I was pretty clear about what sort of snippet I wanted, because um, as we all know, Tolkien has ascribed the origin of all of his stories to the languages. Like it started with the languages and him inventing the languages and the stories emerged out of the languages. Um, I remember talking about back in, way back in, uh, what was it, volume five? Um, I think it's in The Lost Road when we talked about the um, uh, the Hlamas, the Tree of Tongues, um, that really for the first time I could begin to, you know, I could really begin to see a little bit more um, uh, organically uh, than I ever had before the the way that that happened like i'd 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 be able to i i can really grasped that better uh when we were studying that together um so i say to myself an interest it will be an interesting exercise to go through and see where we can see story emerging like story and language kind of coming together um you know whether which one is begetting which yeah, again, you know, I'm not really sure about that. I don't know how to uh, how to prove that exactly one way or the other, but to uh, to look around for snippets and passages that really show the kind of interrelation um, of of language and story uh, in Tolkien's mind. And um, the good news is um, that um, uh 
the good news is that I, um, I found so many of them and I started having so much fun doing it that in the end, I totally overloaded it and there's no way we're going to get through it all. So it's fine because fortunately I set our first discussion of Till We Have Faces far enough in the future that we won't disrupt that by taking an extra week. So we will probably meet again next week uh, to finish things up finally. So without further ado, let's get into that. But um, let's uh, first, before we jump right into the Quendi and Eldar section, part four of uh, The War of the Jewels, we first... We got right up to, but did not get through, the fascinating and uh, uh, rather startling confessions of Christopher Tolkien at the end of part three. Um, we had just been looking at the Tale of Years, you'll remember. And the Tale of Years, of course, was almost the only version, even, you know, as patchy, and inconsistent as it is, um, <clears throat> it represents almost the only later writing of Tolkien um, on these later versions of the story. Almost the only versions of those stories that he wrote in the last, you know, 30 years of his life, essentially. Which left, of course, Christopher Tolkien with a very significant challenge when it came down to putting together the end of the story. Um, in one element of the story that was very difficult for Christopher to put together based on the evidence was the story of Arendel. Um, the version of the story of Arendel that we have is um, not... We don't get that much. Now, there's one advantage at least we have Bilbo's song in Rivendell, right? So that gives us something to kind of ground ourselves in. But the place where he was most at sea, again, the Gondolin story, that was pretty tough, but at least he did have a completed version of that from the Quentin Alderinma. So that's something. Um, again, there, there were, there were a bunch of other places where all we had, all, you know, all Tolkien left in his later days was, were, were those tale, tale of years fragments. But the hardest part, the place where there was no analog other than all the way back to the Quentin Alderinwa and the um, uh, and the Book of Lost Tales, was the Fall of Doriath. And now you might say, "No, so hang on, aren't then the Fall of Gondolin and the Fall of Doriath in the same position? Because the Fall of Gondolin also he didn't work on. Again, not the end of the story, um, not anything other than the setup of the story, of course, in the long version of Tour." Um, so in, in both of them, the last versions we have of them are the Quentin Alderinwa and before that, the Book of Lost Tales. Um, but the difference is the story of Gondolin had remained a good deal more consistent. The story of the fall of Doriath, there were so many moving parts. And the tale of years, instead of helping with that, kind of hurt <laughs> that, really, um, because it introduced more uncertainty, more sort of changes which Tolkien never wrote out. And so Christopher had to decide what to do. So let us look at Christopher's uh, laying his cards on the table here. A note on chapter 22 of The Ruin of Doriath in the published Silmarillion. Apart from a few matters of detail in texts and notes that have not been published, all that my father ever wrote on the subject of The Ruin of Doriath has now been set out. 
from the original story told in the tale of Turambar and the tale of the Nauglifring, through the sketch of the mythology, and the Quenta, together with what little can be gleaned from the tale of years and a very few later references. If these materials are compared with the story told in the Silmarillion, it is seen at once that this latter is fundamentally changed to a form for which, in certain essential features, there is no authority whatever in my father's own writing. So here, in his first paragraph, Christopher admits that there is one chief place in the Silmarillion where he had to write a whole bunch of stuff himself. One place where we're not really getting, primarily, Tolkien's own writing. We're getting many of Tolkien's ideas, and that's another... So, uh, this is the... This is, to me, the fascinating thing. The, the little um, uh, sort of challenge... Not challenge, exactly. Project. Right? The little project that Christopher gives us as readers here. If you do it, right, if you take the published chapter 22, you know, the chapter 22 of the published Silmarillion, and you do go through and reread everything that Christopher has presented to us, that Tolkien wrote about the ruin of Doriath, in those sources, in the Book of Lost Tales, the Sketch of the Mythology, the Quenta, and the Tale of Years, right? If you do that, there are two things, I think, that are immediately and compellingly obvious, right? One is that it, there, there is, it is it is very clear how much Christopher had to write, right? There is so much in the published Silmarillion of that chapter that has no analog. It's, it's not even close to any other chapter. Even, again, the closest analog that we have, as I suggested, is the fall of Gondolin, right? Because there, too, all we have are exactly those same sources, right? The Book of Lost Tales, the Sketch of the Mythology, the Quenta, and the Tale of Years. That's all we have on the Fall of Gondolin, too. Uh, yeah, again, footnote, yes, the first bit, right, of the uh, of the longer version of the Tuor story, which is unfinished. But as it doesn't ever get anywhere close to the Fall of Gondolin, we don't even get to Gondolin in that story that hardly gives us too much, right? Okay, so those are our sources. Th those are the sources for both, but again, when you look at the, if you do if you do if you perform this little you know exercise for both of those things you look at the fall of the published fall of gondolin chapter and the published ruin of doriath chapter and you compare them to these sets of sources which are the only sources for both of those stories what you'll find is the especially the quenta noldorinwa from volume 4 forms a, a massive percentage of the text of the fall of gondolin most of the Fall of Gondolin is in fact, the published Fall of Gondolin is in fact derived. From, now, of course, that part of the uh, that part of the exercise is made easier by the Fall of Gondolin book, right, that was recently published. But anyway, um, I get the, the, the majority of what we read, the significant majority of what we read in the published Silmarillion is derived straight from Tolkien's text, most of it from the, the Quenta version, which is the latest version of it. And Christopher has included a few extra bits. Remember, we, we, we talked about these when we did Volume 4. I'm sure you remember. That was only like eight years ago that we did that. Um, anyway, um, uh, but but in any case, yes, like... It's very clear when you do this exercise for the fall of Gondolin that Christopher was successful 
in limiting his interventions to the few like sentences and bits that were needed in order to um, sort of smooth out internal consistency in the story. Um, that's that's most all that was required. You do the same exercise with the Rune of Doria, the exercise that he's suggesting here, and you find something completely different, right? Um, there is no similar parallel analog text for the Ruin of Doriath. Um, again, you can call the published Silmarillion uh, version of the Fall of Gondolin essentially the Quentin Olderinwa with some alterations. You can't do that with the Ruin of Doriath. Um, so, but here's the other thing. I said you, you, you see two things if you do this exercise. That, that's one, right? You are confronted by the reality that Christopher Tolkien composed a very great deal of text in that chapter. But here's the second thing that you discover, is that he, he was very careful in almost all cases. Uh, I don't want to just beat around, be, beat around the bush. I do think in general, I don't think there's anywhere in that chapter where you cannot see where he's coming from. That is to say, he is not performing an exercise where he's just like, well, let me figure it out. Let me make up my own version of the story. Um, he is trying to fill it in. He is based on the scraps and things that we get. He's trying to fit everything together as best he can. Because if he doesn't do this... I, I think it's pretty clear. If he doesn't do this, there's going to be a gaping hole in the middle of the narrative, right? If he consistently and rigidly followed what were in every other case, his editorial principles for the published Silmarillion, the result is going to be he, he won't really have a text, or at least not a text that's going to fit with the rest of this and make sense, right? It's just a mess. And so he... um yeah, James, I agree. He's doing his best in a really difficult situation. And I agree, Scott, I, I, I agree that it, it's, it is very admirable how transparent Christopher is being here. Uh, my one caveat on the subject of tr Christopher's transparency is he still does that thing that he does throughout of um, generally talking about himself in the, like in the passive voice. But, um, uh, but I can't blame him for that. That's been his pattern all the way through. It's not special here, so I don't think he's trying to avoid blame or something like that. Um, but um, anyway, let's keep going and look at a couple other sections here before we reflect back on more of this. Um, Christopher says, How he would have treated Thingol's behavior towards the dwarves is almost impossible to say. That story was only once told fully in the tale of the Nauglifring, in which the conduct of, conduct of Tinwillant, precursor of Thingol, was wholly at variance with the later conception of the king. In the sketch, no more is said on the matter than that the dwarves were driven away without payment, while in the Quenta, Thingol scanted his promised reward for their labor, and bitter words grew between them, and there was battle in Thingol's halls. There seems to be no clue or hint in later writing, in the Tale of Years, the same bare phrase is used in all the versions, Thingol quarrels with the dwarves, unless one is seen in the words quoted from concerning Galadriel and Celeborn, Celeborn, in his view of the destruction of Doriath, ignored Morgoth's part in it 
and Thingol's own faults. So there is that sidelong implication that Thingol did wrong here. Um, that Thingol was in somehow culpable. That it wasn't... So a, there's a quarrel. What happened, right? So this is... Um, you know, I've told this story before. Um, Verlin Flieger told me uh, years ago that she once cornered Christopher <laughs> and got him to admit that he personally wrote the speech, the how dare ye of uncouth race, the speech that Thingol delivers to the dwarves, which culminates in their killing him, right? Um, he doesn't say that here in so many words. I believe, by the way, that it was this paragraph <laughs> that led Verlin to uh, uh, corner him and nail him to the wall until he admitted it. Um, and if you think I'm being... Uh, any of you who have met Verlin Flieger, and I know many of you have had the opportunity to do that. She's been at Mythmoot a few times. And any of you have ever had a conversation with Verlin Flieger, I think know exactly what I mean when I say cornered and nailed to the wall. Um, uh, uh, Verlin Flieger is a delightful, charming, kind woman who is tough as nails and inescapable in argument. Um, so, um, yes, I, uh, and dogged, uh, in pursuit of her, of, uh, of what she's trying to figure out. Um, Yes, Emily, that is exactly right. Emily says, I've never met her, but I've listened to interviews. She can turn the tables like no one else. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but um, anyhow, so uh, so yes, uh, so she, she got him to admit that he, in fact, wrote that speech. But here we can see, although he doesn't actually admit that in this paragraph, he's talking about that here, right? Um, he ended up composing this speech for Thingol. Um he basically had to answer the question. It was a question that Tolkien left unanswered. How did the quarrel exactly happen? Um, why did... Why, why exactly did the question of the payment for the Silmarils uh, result in a quarrel which ended up in bloodshed? Now notice, by the way, there are two unanswered questions that Tolkien has left about this incident, which um, Christopher is answering in one blow by this device, right? Um, number one, um, that, like, how did the quarrel come about, right? Um, Who was at fault for the quarrel? Notice the answer that um, notice the answer that Christopher has come to. They're both at fault. In the published Silmarillion, you may remember, the dwarves try to withhold the Silmaril. They try to not. They want to not give it back. And Thingol, seeing their attempt to betray him, defies them and insults them, and enrages them so that they kill him. His words, Thingol's words, the words that Christopher put into Thingol's mouth, are at the least unwise, right? I mean, they're, they're rather foolish um, and arrogant and insulting. Um, and uh, anyway, so 
But we can see, we can see what Christopher's doing here, right? On the one hand, he is trying to be true. He doesn't want to exonerate the dwarves. He doesn't make either one of them simply the villain. He makes them both culpable. Um, and he has the authority of that reference, the fact that Celeborn, in some way, seems to blame Thingol um, for what he did. And it holds together. It fits really well. Um, Tolkien left enough data points that Christopher is able to construct something that holds together and that it, and, and, and that works, that fits all of the references that Tolkien made. But Tolkien didn't leave any narrative, nor even enough clear um, direction about that narrative was supposed to go that Christopher was left guessing and having to make stuff up, right? Um, remember the other mystery? The problem that Tolkien emphasized a lot was a problem, um, but never made a clear, gave a clear answer to, and that is, how does the dwarf army get into Menegroth? How could Menegroth be sacked by an invading army? I mean, they couldn't get through the girdle of Melian. So you remember he points that out, that, that in, in, the, in the early drafts of the Tale of Years, back in stage one, or stage A and B, um, he just like blithely says, yeah, dwarves invade and sack Menegroth. And then later on in his own notes in the margin, he was like, how? They can't do that, right? But he never really, you know, he had some ideas like Thingol's going to have to march out to face them and they'll have to kill him out there, right? But he wasn't, he, he wasn't, but he, but he wasn't sure how to contrive that exactly, right? He didn't really solve it. The solution seems to be Christopher's solution. And the solution comes from this same place. If Thingol insults the dwarves, doubly, not only just verbally insulting them, but also sending them forth without pay, which would be then a double insult, right? If he does that to them, thus precipitating their wrath against him, and uh, um, though, of course, even that was provoked by their, you know, at least contemplated double dealing with him in the first place. Again, nobody's innocent. Um, but if they kill him in response to that, and upon his death, Melian takes off, right? Which never made much sense to me, I will admit, it's, to me, that was always one of the weakest parts of this story. Um, that Melian is like, so, Thingol's dead, and I'm awful sad about that. That part I could understand. Oh, look, uh, army of angry and vengeful dwarves marching on Menegroth. Well, I'm out of here, everybody. Thanks. Uh, it's been real, but Thingol's dead, and I'm going to leave y'all to get ransacked by the dwarves. Thank you very much. Peace out. Right. I, I never got that um, from about Melian. Like why? Like I, I couldn't reckon. I, I had a really hard time. I always had a really hard time reconciling that move on Melian's part with her character, uh, as we saw before. Um, and I think that the now the answer to this is made much more clear in place like the nature of Middle Earth. Um, when we learn more about the things that Tolkien was thinking at this time, about how um, it was her it was her marriage to Thingol that was binding her to Middle Earth at all, 
And when that bond was broken by his death, she almost couldn't stay. Like, she's, like, bounced, basically. Her bond with Middle-earth is broken, and she probably can't maintain the girdle after that. Um, and I, I feel confident. I, I mean, obviously, um, Christopher knew about those writings, even though they hadn't been published until the year before last, right? Um, but, um, but still, Christopher knew about them. So Christopher knew that about Melian and Thingol. And from that point of view, it makes sense. How do you, how do you make all that fit together? How do you get rid of the girdle? Kill Thingol. That's how you, that's how you get rid of the girdle, right? Um, how can somebody kill Thingol while he's in the girdle? Well, if he invites them inside the girdle, brings them into his home and then insults them and they they uh they strike him down there at that point. Um so um yeah, yeah. Um anyway. Um yeah. <laughs> it's Maya prerogative, Chad. <laughs> that is not a sufficient answer to why Melian doesn't leave. Um even Though I now am imagining Bobby the Brown, as you say, um, uh, singing that song. It's my it's my prerogative. Anyway, the point is, the point is, it's a it's. I think it's a pretty cunning solution, actually. Um, that now, like, it's insufficiently kind of contextualized and explained in the published narrative, such that again, I I, I was for many years left. Um, unsatisfied by that piece of the narrative. Even though, again, I'm a little bit more satisfied by it in retrospect. Um, but um, anyway, uh, yeah, now, Scott. Um, Scott was asking, do you think uh, Thorin's complaint against Mirkwood informed this story at all with our beef with Randul serving as a model of this one with Thingol? Um, not exactly. Um, well, okay, it's complicated, Scott, right? Because on the one hand, when you go back to 1930, like, to the years in which he was writing The Hobbit, um, it's one of those kind of interesting things, right? Um, I remember going through this cycle myself. Um, many of you have probably done the same, right? Um, so if you're like me, you read The Hobbit first when you were a kid. You know, and you learn about from Thorin about the grievance between the Elven King and the Dwarves, right? And you're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. You know, you just kind of take it as part of the Hobbit story, and then you read the Lord of the Rings, and you're really none the wiser, right? Apart from you get provide some context for the significance of the Legolas and Gimli friendship. Then later on, you read the Silmarillion, and you read the story of Thingol and the Dwarves, and you know the ruin of Doriath, and then you're like, oh, that's what the Hobbit story was referring to, right? I get the connection now. Of course, there would be still bad blood and ill feelings on both sides of the whole, you know, uh, elf dwarf situation, um, given what happened there in Doriath, right? And so then you again, if you're like me, uh, you are a young, insufferable purist, and and you're like, um, you know, and you're like, oh, now I understand the whole thing. But then you go back and read The Hobbit again really carefully. And you're like, actually, no, that doesn't fit the story of the published Silmarillion. It's inconsistent, just as perhaps you might notice uh, that the things that are said about Gondolin 
in chapter three in the House of Elrond, of in, in chapter three of The Hobbit, don't actually fit the story of Gondolin uh, as we um, uh, as we have it. Um, so that might then puzzle you for many years until then, finally, later on, you read the history of Middle-earth and you then read the state, you read the Quentin Olderinwa, which was basically the state of the Silmarillion mythology at the time he wrote The Hobbit. And then you're like, oh, okay, sure. That fits a little better. Gondolin, by the way, still doesn't fit. Gondolin never fits. Um, Gondolin of The Hobbit does not fit anything he ever wrote about Gondolin which is an interesting data point in itself. But that's a different conversation. Um, but here, the version of the of the Thingol story, that of the Ruin of Doriath story that we get in the Quentin Olderinwa fits much more closely to the story as we hear it um, in The Hobbit. Um, so, okay, um, that helps. But so now, but now, Scott, back to your, but now you're Christopher. Right, you're Christopher, and you know this, right? You're looking at those references in The Hobbit, and you, undoubtedly, you and your dad talked about this, right? About how, like, you know, he might even need to go back and change some of that because it doesn't fit. But fortunately, the Silmarillion's not been published yet, so you know, no harm, no foul. Nobody else knows anything different, so it's all fine. But, um, but anyway, you're Christopher, and what are you doing? You're writing this chapter, the Ruin of Doriath, right? You're trying to plug this hole in the Silmarillion narrative. And so what are you doing? You're drawing in every possible source that you can, right? But The Hobbit is a is a complicated source, right? Because if you stick to that, if you stick to making the Silmarillion story consistent with The Hobbit story, then you can't make it consistent with the later stuff from like The Tale of Years and such and Tolkien's letters. So... Um, because it's clear that Tolkien's ideas had moved past where things were when he wrote The Hobbit. So, um, but you might kind of have an eye to that and sort of want to, you want to make the parallel strong enough that it kind of fits, that it's going to please people like me, you know, in my early years when I first read The Silmarillion. Um, but um, you, um, you at the same time want to stay true, but your higher priority is to stay true to the Silmarillion story as that was developing in your father's mind. So it's super complicated. Again, this is all so hard. Um, and I have, uh, so much respect for what Christopher was sort of working on doing there. Um, yeah. Um, so David Michael, I got, I'm coming back to your earlier, uh, pinned question there. Um, has someone ever gotten Christopher to explain his envisaged solution to how he felt he could and should have done the Ruin of Doriath as noted in this section? I am not aware of it. Um, though maybe um, maybe I will someday try to pin Berlin Flieger down and see if she got more out of him uh, than she told me that one time. But um, uh, anyway, okay. But, but let's, let's, let's keep going because there's a little bit more. Okay, so um, here's his summary. In the story that appears in the Silmarillion, the outlaws who went with Hurin to Nargothrond were removed. So again, this is not just a summary of the story, it's a summary of what he did, right, in the formula, like the choices that he made. The outlaws who went with Hurin to Nargothrond were removed. 
as also was the curse of Mim. And the only treasure that Hurin took from Nargothrond was the Nauglamir, which was here supposed to have been made by dwarves for Finrod Felagund, and to have been the most prized by him of all the horde of Nargothrond. Hurin was represented as being at last freed from the delusions inspired by Morgoth in his encounter with Melian in, Mor in Menegroth. The dwarves who set the Silmaro and the Nauglamir were already in Menegroth engaged in other works, and it was they who slew Thingol. At that time, Melian's power was, with was withdrawn from Neldoreth and Regian, and she vanished out of Middle-earth, leaving Doriath unprotected. The ambush and destruction of the dwarves at Sarn Athrad was given again to Baron and the Green Elves, following my father's letter of 1963, quoted on page 353, where, however, he said that Baron had no army, and from the same source, the Ents, Shepherds of the Trees, were introduced. Okay, so, um, uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm seeing Arthur's comment. Good luck with that. Yeah, when I say I'm going to try to pin Vroen Flieger down, that's bravado, uh, pure bravado. What that really means is I will ask really nicely and apologize if she says no. <laughs> I don't want to make like I'm afraid of Vroen Flieger. I just, I can't, um, I just can't match Vroen Flieger. <laughs> so um, I have, uh, I have no illusions of being able to, to prize from her something she doesn't want to give me. Um, but uh, anyway, anyway, so, yeah, just uh, confessing that. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Approach with respect and childlike wonder. Yeah, it's it's so funny. Verlin Flieger and Tom Shippey are two of the, you know, the most senior, like they're the, you know, the, the uh, you know, the, the founders essentially of like modern Tolkien studies and both of them are so kind and so generous um, they're just just wonderful people and delightful and accommodating and friendly um, but they're so different in other respects right you know you sit down and have a pint with Tom Shippey and he'll tell you stories and you'll just you know you can talk for hours and hours right um you uh, start talking about Tolkien with uh, Verlin, and she won't let you get away with anything, right? She'll, you know, ex you know, oh man, uh, she is so thoughtful and so careful and so good. Um, but again, tough as nails, tough as nails, and never lets anything slide by. Um, um, <laughs> yes, where where is it in the text exactly that she will? Um, um, she never just nods and smiles when people make claims or statements. She comes at them um, with kindly but forceful uh, pedagogy. Um, anyhow, okay. Um, back to his summary here. So you can see the significance, right? We, we can see, we, we know enough now. He's, he's Christopher's told us enough now to be able to see both the cause for the particular choice, like the premise of the choices that he's made, and also the significance, the cost of the choices that he made in this chapter. Right? First, um, he cut the outlaws who went with Hurin. Hurin is traveling alone, right? Now we know from the wanderings of Hurin that that is very much not Tolkien's plan. 
Tolkien had planned this whole, I mean, he had this whole narrative that was going to like look like it was going to approach like a novel length treatment, right, of Hurin and his band, which, as we saw, had many parallels to Turin and his band. Um, the fact that Hurin was very definitively not wandering around Beleriand alone um, was a huge part of the story as Tolkien conceived of it in its final form, that is, in the last form that Tolkien developed it in. And so, therefore, for Christopher to make that decision, to abandon all of that material and simplify the story to Hurin wandering Beleriand alone was a massive change. Now, remember, we already talked about that. We, at the end of the Wanderings of Hurin section, we were looking at Christopher's kind of confessions about why he felt he couldn't... Uh, because there, there was already so much... Um, I mean, think about think about the ver the the story of the wanderings of Hurin as we got them. How Hurin's character was being developed and being developed in relationship with the men of Brethil and with his own with with the men of of Dorloman at first, and then the you know both those that followed him and those who opposed him in Dorloman, and then of those who helped him and those who opposed him in Brethil. Right? Um, there's all this setup. If he had included any of that, he would have had to write a whole new ending to that to their stories, right? What was their destiny going to be? How were they going to fit in to the final story of the Ruin of Doriath, you know, with Hurin's dealings with Thingol and Melian, right? Um, Christopher had very little to go on unless he was going to go all the way back to, like, the Book of Lost Tales and stuff, right? And it was clear that a lot had changed. So, um... But, um, anyway, um, that is, um, uh, so it's, it's understandable, but as we can see, this violates one of the fundamental editorial principles of the Silmarillion, which is to take the latest completed version of the story as possible. Um, and here he is deliberately turning his face away from what he knows full well to be the latest and quite fully written version of the story. But since it's only a fully written part of the version, it would have set him up for making up much more stuff, right? So he made that hard choice and simplified it. He cut out the curse of meme. If all we had were the Quentin Nolderinwa and, and especially the Book of Lost Tales, that would seem like a shocking choice, right? But we can clearly see that it's justified. It seems plain throughout every version of the Tale of Years that Tolkien was turning strongly away from the story of the Curse of Meme and focusing more and more on the Silmarils and the Oath of Feanor, right? So that seems totally justified, though it complicates the other decision, the other major decision that he makes here which is to return the ambush and destruction of the dwarves at Sarn Athred uh, to Beren and the Green Elves. It seemed very clear that the, the trend of his father's narrative was not, not only had gone in the direction of the Sons of Feanor, but had been settling more and more fully in the Feanorians and their role, so that the um, the ambush and destruction of the dwarves by Kelegorm and Curafin um, was becoming something like the opening move 
of the whole story of the second and then the third Kinslings, right? Um, so why, why did he do that? Why did he move away from them? Well, as he says, there's that letter that his dad wrote in 1963 um, that said that Baron, with the help of the Ents, ambushed the dwarves, right? So here is Christopher torn between what seems the clear direction of the tale of uh, the tale of years material on the one hand and the explicit reversal of that in the 1963 letter that his father wrote. Um, and I would add with the additional bonus element, if I had to guess, this may be irresponsible of me and I might just be projecting but if I had to guess, um, if I were a betting man, I would lay money on the fact that the primary element which tipped the scales for Christopher in deciding, because there's evidence, there's clear evidence in both directions, right? Is it the Fanorians or is it Baron? If I had to guess, what was it that, that tipped Christopher in the direction of Baron and the Ents? It's the coolness factor of having a first age end story other than the story of Ali and Yavanna. Because, of course, the Ents themselves, they were a Lord of the Rings invention. And unlike many of the other things which emerged from the Lord of the Rings, things like the, the Druidon and the Palantir and Galadriel, right? and the Astari, those things he wrote much more about, as we know from Unfinished Tales, right? He spent a lot of time writing and thinking about those things more. Um, he seems to have done that. He did that comparatively little with the Ents. We don't have an essay on the Ents like we do on the Astari and the Palantiri and, the, and even the Druidine, right? Um, they come up in letters because fans are always asking about the Ent wives, right? Um, so they come up in letters, but he never really went back and wrote more stories about the Ents. So starved for end material and knowing full well from his father's correspondence how many people already were asking questions about the Ents, um, I think that Christopher made the choice to include an Ent-related sto story in the published Silmarillion because he could. Um, because, because there was warrant for it. And that would mean... There are now, uh, it raises the reference to Ents in the Silmarillion from one to two, and it raises the stories in which they're involved from zero to one, right? Um, and that, I think, is pretty cool. Not to mention the fact that it picks up on some of the tensions, you know, in the, you know, a dwarf and an axe bearer, says Treebeard, right? Um, that's gold, right? Gold. If you, when you read the Silmarillion and you read about the, the, battle between the Ents and the Dwarves, right? Which Treebeard was probably personally at, right? Um, so the payoff for that choice is pretty sweet from a Lord of the Rings perspective, right? Um, and so it's my suspicion that that connection was just too juicy for him to turn down, even though within the context of the Silmarillion narrative itself, I think the Feanorian version is far more compelling, right? Far more compelling and far more important 
um, it changing that back to Baron and the Grey Elves, ends are no ends, does, I think, compromise the overall story so that it goes back to Sound, I mean, you remember stage A of the Tale of Years, the second kinsling kind of seems to come out of nowhere. Like, oh, FYI, second kinsling happens for reasons, right? I mean, Oath of Feanor, we know why, right? But not going to tell the story. And then that story emerges later on. Um, and the their wrath, the wrath of the sons of Feanor at not recovering the Silmaril with, uh, you know, off the corpses of the dwarves at Sarnothrad um, is the you know, the opening act to that. Um, so there is a cost, I think. It does mean, I th- I do believe that it does make the story of the last chapters, especially those fi- the final two kinslayings, even in the published Silmarillion, I think, that the final two kinslayings are, um, I think they suffer. I think that they're, um, they don't hit home very hard, I think. Um, not compared to many of the other things that are there. So there was a cost, but the tree beard thing, lots of payoff, hard to complain. Um, and then we already talked about how he's pointing indirectly to the solution of the Girdle of Melian problem with the dwarf invasion. Um, Graham, what a wonderful observation. Graham says, it seems like he's trying to make First Age Dwarves more consistent with what Gimli ended up being. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Now, again, it doesn't mean that he's like, well, Gimli was cool, so all the dwarves should be cool, right? Um, dwarves are still problematic, right? He doesn't, he doesn't entirely leave behind dwarves as we see them in The Hobbit, right? Um, dwarves are not heroes. Um... So it's okay for dwarves, not all dwarves, to be heroes. Like, it's okay for them to be, you know, willing to do dodgy things, as clearly the, the you know, jewel smiths of the dwarves in um, Doriath were willing to do in Christopher's version, right? Um, so, okay, anyway, um, final confession, or apology, really. This story was not lightly or easily conceived, but was the outcome of long experimentation among alternative conceptions. In this work, Guy Kay took a major part, and the chapter that I finally wrote owes much to my discussions with him. It is and was obvious that a step was being taken of a different order from any other manipulation of my father's own writing in the course of the book. Even in the case of the story of the fall of Gondolin, to which my father had never returned, Something could be contrived without introducing radical changes in the narrative. It seemed at the time that there were elements inherent in the story of the ruin of Doriath as it stood that were radically incompatible with the Silmarillion as projected, and that was here, and that there was here an inescapable choice, either to abandon that conception or else to alter the story. I think now that this was a mistaken view and that the undoubted difficulties could have been and should have been surmounted without so far overstepping the bounds of the editorial function. Once again, and in his... um, uh, uh, Once again, and in his... In the strongest version of it that he's given, Christopher says, for what, the second or third time in this book, that he regrets what he did. You know, that he has 
more than second thoughts, right? That he has active regrets about choices that he made. And here, about arguably the most significant... Well, okay, I won't say the most significant choice that he made. Certainly one of the most uh, significant choices that he made. How to approach the Ruin of Doriath stuff. Um, I want to push back on Christopher a little bit here. Um, first, let's try to understand what he means when he says, I think now that this was a mistaken view. Um, what exactly does he think is mistaken? He said, it seemed at the time that there were elements inherent in the story of the ruin of Doriath as it stood that were radically incompatible with the Silmarillion as projected, and that there was here an inescapable choice, either to abandon that conception or else to alter the story. So he believes, I think what he's saying is, he, that's what he thinks is the mistaken view. That he, that he had those two choices. That he either had to alter the story, or he had to abandon the conception of the Silmarillion as projected. Um, I, for myself, am not sure I disagree with that view. And he calls it mistaken. I'm not sure it is mistaken. He says, what's more, that the undoubted... He's like, there were obviously difficulties. Right? He's not trying to pretend that the answer was obvious and he didn't see it or something. And that the undoubted difficulties could have been and should have been surmounted without so far overstepping the bounds of the editorial function. How? How? I don't... I don't... I don't see... I don't see how. How could he have done... I mean, I, I, yeah, I can see how he could have done other than he did in the sense I could I could imagine him saying more or less. I could imagine him coming with some different... I mean, there's some problems he had to solve himself and perhaps he could have suggested different solutions. I mean, but that's not what he's talking about here. right? What he's talking about is he's like, I thought I had two choices. Either I had to write this chapter myself and make a bunch of stuff, you know, just make a bunch of decisions myself, write a whole bunch of prose of my own and put it in the Silmarillion. It was either that or abandon the Silmarillion as projected or else I could not have a consistent story. And I'm not sure I see a third, a viable third alternative there. Again, could there have been some differences? Does he now look back and regret some of the choices, you know, the, 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 storytelling choices that he made there? Does he see now ways in which he could have told the story in a way which is um, a little bit less freewheeling, right? Which, um, you know, I guess, I mean, I can believe it if he, you know, that that's what he's suggesting. But at the end of the day, I still only see those two options. If he'd left a he could have left a hole, I suppose. I mean, he could have just included a few paragraphs that, you know, says, like, not much is known of the fall of Doriath, you know, or, like, much lore has been lost. Um, foremost among which is, like, we don't really know what happened, but this I may say, right? Like, he could have done something like that. Um, but would that have been better? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that would have... That's the only alternative I can think of, is just skimming over the whole thing, right? Dad only left sketchy notes, so I'm just going to give sketchy notes. Right. Not in the sense of like, I'm going to I'm going to do, 
it like a chapter of the history of Middle Earth, right? But to um, to just to just say, you know, more is guessed than is known about the the ruin of Doriath, and make it seem like it's just a, a black hole in the lore of Beleriand, right? But again, I'm not convinced that that's a better solution to than than what he did. I can understand that he feels bad about it. I mean, I can, I, I given what we've seen about his convictions about editing the Silmarillion, um, I mean, he he is so self-effacing and he went so far out of his way to intrude himself and his own creative choices upon the Silmarillion. He, he, went, he went to such great lengths to avoid that as much as possible that I find it easy to believe that when he reflects upon the one chapter in which he was forced to abandon that reticence and jump in, I can imagine he feels bad about that, you know, that he wishes he hadn't done it. Um, but seriously, I, um, um, I don't, I don't, I certainly don't think that that would have been a better solution. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say it's okay, Christopher. It's okay. You did overstep the bounds of the editorial function, but you know what? It's a better book because you did. Um, the story of the Silmarillion is so much more compelling. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tirithon, you know, maybe you're right. And Tirithon is saying that maybe Christopher's concern um, is also wrapped up in the choice to cut out the frame narrative, that the frame narrative could have given him the release to write different versions. Maybe. Maybe. I still don't think he could have... Again, this is the reason... The feelings that are the convictions, let me say, I don't want to mean to be slighting. Um, the convictions that Christopher is giving voice to here um, about, you know, keeping himself out and not overstepping the bounds of the editorial function um, certainly would, were, could not be reconciled with keeping the frame. If he were to have kept the frame in, he would have had to write a whole lot of frame. You had to make up a whole lot of frame because it's not all there, right? Um, and so that's why, it, it, in order to make sure he doesn't overstep the bounds of the editorial function, he's he can't include the frame. That's why he took it out, right? Um, but um, but yeah, yeah. I um, but you're right, Tirithon, that there is a kind of irony there that it would have made this much easier, right? Now, again, it wouldn't have fixed his problem long term, but it but it would have made this easier. And by the way, that is, of course, what I was thinking when I started to say that his choice to approach the Ruin of Doriath chapter in this way was the most significant editorial choice he made. I then thought of the frame and was like, actually, I kind of think the frame choice was an even bigger one. But um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, JJ asked, was Christopher too concerned with was was he too concerned with the Silmarillion as a study in J.R.R. Tolkien's legendarium instead of seeing it as a story? JJ, I believe that that's exactly what he means when he says incompatible with the Silmarillion as projected. Um like what's the alternative? If he did abandon that conception, I think that what he would have done that that is the conception of the Silmarillion is I'm going to present this as a coherent story, right? I'm going to present it in quinta form. I'm going to publish this so that people can 
immerse themselves in this as the legends of the elder days um, firsthand in a sense and not as and not have it read like one of the history of middle earth volumes right not just have it be a scholarly volume which contains a bunch of his father's writing but with you know an editorial apparatus around it um so yes jj i do think that the 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 decision that he ultimately was making to say i want the silmarillion to be readable you know as a work of as a story right that was what his father wanted clearly what his father wanted right um and so in at the end of the day that's what swayed him that's why he didn't want to abandon the conception of the silmarillion as projected um, and instead do that kind of thing, J.J., a study in Jarrah or Tolkien's Legendarium or, or similar, right? Um, yes, so in the end, um, I don't accept Christopher Tolkien's apology. Um, don't apologize, Christopher, for writing The Ruin of Doriath chapter. The Silmarillion is better for it. And even given how challenging many Tolkien fans have found getting into the Silmarillion, um, it would have been almost entirely inaccessible uh, to even more people if it had been presented as a scholarly work like that. I mean, there are many, many Tolkien fans that um, struggle with getting into the Silmarillion. But the people who successfully read and come to love the Silmarillion are an order of magnitude, at least one order of magnitude greater uh, than the number of people who really read and enjoy the history of Middle-earth, right? So if that's all we ever had, if basically we didn't have the Silmarillion and we just had the history of Middle-earth, it would be just as fascinating. It would be lovely, awesome, wonderful. Um, it would not have had the smallest fraction. Okay, the smallest. It would have had the smallest fraction. It would only have had a tiny fraction of the impact that the published Silmarillion did. Um, yeah, <laughs> I agree, James. James says, I agree it's good that we have the Silmarillion in the form it's in, and I feel bad that Christopher felt bad enough to write this apology. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You can you can feel the... Uh, the, the struggle was real, right? The struggle the struggle was, 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 was real. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Chad, Chad Bornhold is bristling at the idea of uh, that there are excuses for not understanding the Silmarillion. I know, Chad. I know. I know. Um, I'm just saying, I'm just, I'm just observing. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to excuse anybody. Because now, um, nobody has any excuse for not getting through the Silmarillion. Because if you can't get through the Silmarillion... You have Chad. So there you are. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I know, Chad, you and I learned without us. It's true. It's true. And many, many others do as well. I'm just, I'm, I'm just teasing you, Chad. Um, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, <laughs> let's, um, let's, Jump. So you can see one of the reasons why I was uh, I lost my confidence um, was I was looking back. I was like, I don't want to rush. I don't want to rush through this. This is a really important part. Um, 
this is this whole little passage at the end of part three of the War of the Jewels is, I think, arguably, if you want to understand Christopher Tolkien, his undertaking, his dilemma, you know, his, um, you know, triumphs and defeats uh, in publishing the Silmarillion. I think we learn more about Christopher Tolkien in these couple pages than we do in most of the rest of the history of Middle-earth. So um, I definitely wanted to... Um, um, I definitely wanted to to spend some time here. Um, but, um, okay. Anyway, but now let us move forward. Let us move forward into um, snippets and th fun things to observe in the heavily philological discussion of the Quendi and the Eldar. Um, so we learned that Quendi comes from a Quenya word, which just means people. Um, this is one of my first favorite moments in this text. Um, Ele. So the L root of, um, of, of Eldar, right? People of the stars. According to Elvish legend, this was a primitive exclamation. Lo, behold, made by the elves when they first saw the stars. Love that. <laughs> Love that. So the elves named themselves not exactly after the stars, but after the spontaneous exclamation they made when they looked up and saw the stars. Um, Ele, Ele, lo, behold. Right. So, yes, it's and that is um, lo is the word that Tolkien used to translate the Old English word hat. The first word of Beowulf. Um, this is why, by the way, in um, like the Battle of Pelennor, the Battle of Pelennor Field, um, the word "low" uh, comes up a lot. Um, it's really interesting because um, a lot of people read that and they immediately modern people, modern readers who don't read a lot of older books, always have this blanket association of almost any archaic speech with the Bible, uh, with the King James, because for most modern readers who haven't read old books, the, you know, quotations from the King James Bible are probably some of the only archaic English they've ever heard in their lives. And so it's what it makes them think of when they, when they read that. Um, so people will see him breaking out with the word low and they'll, they'll, uh, say that he is sounding either like the Bible or he's sounding like Shakespeare, the other piece of archaic English that many modern people have heard. Um, and, uh, but of course, that's not what Tolkien, he was not referring to Shakespeare and he, he's not imitating Shakespeare, nor is he imitating the King James. Um, what he is doing is, is reaching back and trying to use old English heroic rhythms of speech. So if you, when you read those moments of elevated diction in the Lord of the Rings, you get them, especially, as I say, in the battle of Pelennor field, um, whenever he uses the word low with an exclamation point, um, substitute the word what the Anglo-Saxon, uh, what, and, um, it's, um, um, it's, 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 that's pretty cool. But anyway, yes, that's what they said. What? Lo, behold, Ella, when they looked up. Um, and I get just the idea that the fundamental, like the, the, the original root, um, the original root of the, um, 
of the elves' word for the stars and therefore the name for themselves as a people um, is an exclamation of wonder. That is awesome on many, many levels, right? Um, not least because they call themselves the Quendi, the speaking people. They're all about language, right? And yet their fundamental identity comes from a sort of um, almost inarticulate cry of wonder, right? That is uh, that is so cool. All right, more. More. Um, I loved what we get about the frame of reference. Again, you can feel the elf, the stories of elf history kind of emerging here, right? So here's another root. Awadelo, awadelo, wadelo. Old compounds with the element awa, away. A name made in Beleriand for those who finally departed from Middle-earth. And then a little bit later, the element awa, appearing in 3C above, referred to movement away viewed from the point of view of the thing, person, or place left. So this root, this word, this concept is going to become the name for the people who are not the Avari, right? So in the Silmarillion, we get the names for the people left behind, right? There's this bias within the Silmarillion, this bias towards ultimately the Noldor, right? So we know what the Noldor called the elves who never left Quivienen. And we know what the elves called people who stayed behind in Beleriand, right? And we know what they called themselves. This is something we never get in the published Silmarillion because it's not from the point of view of the Noldor, right? Ultimately, this describes the point of view of the thing, person, or place left talking about the thing that went away, right? That thing that departed. Um, and so, so that's really interesting. And notice, by the way, how neutral that was, right? Um, that is, it's, it's, there's no, um, there's no, like, moral, there's no emotional freight to this. It's like a, just a, a description of movement, Right, the origins of the name that the stayed behind elves gave to the elves who went away is just uh, has its origins in the physical description of their departure. Right, no baggage is sort of attached to that, and that's important when we look at the other kinds of examples. For instance, the root abba, aba which is to refuse or say nay in refusal or denial, right? So in other words, this is what elvish two-year-olds say all the time, right? Uh, this is the source of the CE, which is, oh, shoot, what does C stand for? Um, uh, somebody remind me what the CE, I, I lose track of his, this is one of Christopher's, no, it's Tolkien's abbreviation, Common Elderin, thank you, Alyssa. The Common Elderin Abar, Plural, abari, a refuser, one who declined to follow orime. Um, yes, Arthur, I was thinking about that too, um, that Abba is the Hebrew for father. Um, and so when the whole like refusal saying no thing, which immediately made me think of 
toddlers saying Abba, and that immediately Arthur crossed streams in my head with Hebrew children saying Abba to their dads. So yeah, I was thinking in that same direction too. Um, but um, anyway, notice how the word for the Avari, which is what that's the root here, right? Ultimately, this root is going, this is going to become the Avari, the unwilling. Um, whereas the the, the the words describing the elves who left, again, it's, it's, it's sort of neutral. It's emotionally neutral. It just describes them, their emotion away from the point of reference, right? From the beginning, the Avari are, this is freighted, right? To refuse or to say no. They're not just people unwilling, as it's translated in the published Silmarillion, is a, a gentle translation, right? That's a, that's a way more neutral than the refusers, right? That's, um, that's a lot, right? That's, uh, there's, there's, there's some pretty heavy, uh, freight that, that, that's a little judgy, isn't it? Right. Um, so again, it shows us some interesting things about the, about the framework here. And again, notice how this is once more, this is story emerging out of language, right? Another one, Quenya, Hika, imperative exclamation, be gone, stand aside, normally only addressed to persons. It often appears in the forms Hekat, singular, and Hekal, plural, with reduced pronomial affixes of the second person. Let's not worry about that. Also, Hekwa from Hekwa, adverb and preposition, leaving aside, not counting, excluding, except. Okay, so the root idea of this word, right, is, so you, you use it as an exclamation. Get out of the way to somebody, right? If you're telling some, if somebody's standing in your way and you want them to get out of your way, you say heka to them, right? And as an adverb, it can be, it can mean leaving aside, excluding. So, so you did this excluding, excluding that, right? Um, now further, heta. H-E-H-T-A. Heta, past tense, hetane. Put us, so this is a verb. Put aside, leave out, exclude, abandon, forsake. Okay, so when you're, when you're not just telling somebody to get out of the way, when you're pushing something out, putting it aside, excluding it, abandoning it, you use this verb. Heta. Hekil, so uh, C version. Hekil, and hekilo, masculine, hekile, fe feminine. One lost or forsaken by friends. Waif, outcast, outlaw. Okay, so if you are a hekil or a hekilo, you are one who has been abandoned, forsaken, right? You're an outlaw or an outcast or a, or a, or a waif, like an orphan on the street, right? Also, hekel, plural, hekeldi, Reformed to match O.R.L., especially applied to the Eldar left in Beleriand. So, the Sindar, right? The Sindar are called the Hekil. This is Quenya, keep in mind, right? Which implies this is what, like, the Noldor called them, right? There's this concept. There's this word for... And notice there's this almost implication of casting out. Like you would say to somebody, get out of the way! 
right? Or the verb to put aside, to exclude, right? Um, harsh, harsh, right? Um, hence, Hekelmar and Hekeldemar, the place, the name in the language of the lore masters of Amon for Beleriand. So Beleriand itself becomes among like Rumil and, you know, his buddies or whatever over in Amon. They call Beleriand Hekelmar, the land of the forsaken. The land of the cast of the, the outcasts, right? Um, wow. <laughs> Wow. Okay. That, um, that, um, that, that's a spin, right? There's uh, there's definitely some freight there. And again, think of how much less neutral this term and the Avari term are compared to the, uh, to the other term, the one that we don't get in the published Silmarillion, the one about them just going away. Right. Yeah. This is, uh, this is harsh. And that's where the, that's where ultimately the name Eglamar comes from. We'll get there. We'll get to the Cinderin version of it. In fact, we'll do that right now. Here's the other side of the story. Cinderin. Aetha. This is, in the main, a derivative of PQ, which is primitive quenya, I believe. A derivative of the primitive quenya ekta. So this is that, that same root that we were just talking about. <laughs> and it means, that is Aetha in Cinderin, means prick with a sharp point, stab. But in the sense, treat with scorn or insult, often with reference to rejection or dismissal, and may show the effect of blending with the primitive quenya hecta. To say to anyone, ego was indeed the gravest athad. Uh, so I believe this means, if I'm following, and again, I am no expert here. But I believe these things are are kind of analogs of each other, right? The Quenya and what the 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 Cinderin became. I think he's talking about like when Enoldor says Heka, right? Get out of the way. Um, like the Cinderin version of that would be Ego, and that's a grave. That's the gravest insult in Cinderin to say Ego. It's talk about treating with insulting, stabbing, right? Then he goes on. Eglon, mostly used in the plural Eglain, Eglothrim, the name that the Sindar gave to themselves, the Forsaken, as distinguished from the elves who left Middle-earth. They call themselves Eglon, which is from this same root, ultimately, the Hecta root. But whereas the Quenya side of the story means like the so the Noldor in Quenya are calling them the abandoned ones, the outcast ones, right? They're calling themselves the Forsaken, which kind of means the the insulted, the stabbed, right? I mean it's it's uh there's a lot of freight here, too, but it goes kind of the other direction, right? I mean, I, I would, um, in this context, hazard a modern 
paraphrase, um, a modern translation of Eglein um, as like the screwed over ones, basically. Um, there's um, there's some serious. <laughs> there's, there's some serious uh this is a big deal and by the way even this this fact right um even this fact uh the fact that there's so much tension i mean i had no idea right before reading this you know you don't get the sense in the published silmarillion that like quenya words for beleriand are insults right nor that the even the even and we get the you know the forsaken right we get that in the published silmarillion but even that seems kind of new i mean there's a there's an emotional weight to that obviously right but it's a sort of one of sort of sad longing right um you don't get the anger that appears to be uh uh you know behind it right um there uh there seems to have been a lot of um electricity here right in both directions um i'm getting a clearer sense of how much um judginess there really was on either side of the great sea here the decision to go leave Beleriand or not leave Beleriand seems to be even more heavily weighted than the Silmarillion narrative would seem to suggest. Scott, you're exactly right. They're totally not over it. Nobody's over it. Right? Nobody's over it. Um, one's calling the others outlaws, and the and they are calling them, you know, uh, abusers. Right? You stabbed us. You stabbed us in the back. Um, it's, um, uh, it's a big deal. Um, dolor stroke, uh, all this comes back to the decision of the Valar to call the elves big mistake or biggest mistake. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, by the way, that's one of my biggest, my big picture trends. Um, I absolutely think we see, uh, the evidence that asking the elves to leave Middle-earth was a really, really bad idea on the part of the Valar is to me a kind of a leitmotif that runs through this whole linguistic discussion, actually. right? Um, think of how many times we hear that one of the groups of elves thought of the other group of elves as no better than Avari. Right? Um, that it's like, you're, you're really closet Avari. Right? Um... And everybody thinks that everybody is a closet of Ari, right? And so part of me wants to say, Dolores Stroke, part of me wants to say, you know, well, maybe this is because everybody, in fact, had the impulse to stay in Middle-earth because that was what they were supposed to do, right? But anyway, um, okay, more. Let's keep going. The verb outa, go away, leave, the point of the speaker's thought, had an old, strong past tense, unway only found in archaic language. The most frequently used past and, pre past and perfect were vane, avanie, made from the stem wa, together with a past participle vanwa. 
This last was an old formation, which is also found in Sindarin, and was the most frequently used part of the verb. It developed the meanings gone, lost, no longer to be had, vanished, departed, dead, passed, and over. This, remember, this is the word for describing the elves who leave, right? So as we're in Beleriand, or indeed perhaps even further east than Beleriand, and we're thinking about the elves who went away, whether you're in Avari, thinking about the elves that left Quivienen, or whether you're one of the, um, uh, uh, you know, outlaws in Beleriand, thinking about uh, the elves who went on to, 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 to Valinor, what started as a purely sort of emotionally neutral um, word for moving away from the location that you're currently at, right, has now gained a little bit of an emotional weight. But look at the weight that it's not a weight of condemnation, right? Gone, lost, no longer to be had, vanished, departed, dead, passed, and over. They're gone. They're gone. They're just gone. Right? Dolorous stroke. You hear it? I hear it. The the mistake of the Valar, right? I think that the elves who are thinking about those... So this is how we're thinking of what, what we think of the elves who went away, who went off to Valinor. They're, they're gone, vanished, departed, dead, passed and over. Um, I think, again, it's not proof. It's just a... It's a... There's an echo here, though. At least I, I think, I think that there is. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's kind of a beautiful, beautiful idea. That description. Okay, back to Abba. We get more. Though this is, though this became a verbal stem, it is probably derived from a primitive negative element or exclamation, such as "ba," "no." It did not, however, deny facts, but always expressed concern or will. That is, it expressed refusal to do what others might wish or urge, or prohibition of some action by others. See, this is why ba is totally the toddler word, right? Toddlers don't just say no in denying facts. I mean, they do that too, right? But they love, you know, two-year-olds love to use, uh, love to use no primarily in a refusal to do what others wish or urge, or a prohibition of some action by others, right? That's, that's, that's two-year-olds all over, right? And that's the dimension that's given to this word, ba. So, the, again, the unwilling, the avari, are not just like, yeah, we'd rather not, right? Thanks, but no thanks. Refusal to, it's a, it's, it makes them more active, Right? As a verbal stem, it developed the form abba, with connecting vowel a in the aorist. As a particle or prefix, the forms abba, ba, and abba. Um, so, by the way, I've learned enough about the aorist to be able to figure that part out. So, the aorist, it's a, it's a tense. They use it in Greek, they don't use it in Latin, and therefore we don't use it in English. Um, but the aorist tense, as I have come to understand it, is it's a reference to a thing that happened in the past. Like, a thing that happened at a point in the past. Um, uh, it's, like, it's like a thing that has occurred, right? This is important because it means that um, from the ba root, the abba form, so the word avari contains that aorist root. That is to say, it's referring... Not, they're not just... 
general refusers. They're not people who tend to say no. They're the people who refused at a point in the past, right? There was a, there was a moment, there was a time in the past when, it is, when, a, when a negative decision was made, right? And we are defining them by that aorist sense, right? By that thing that happened at that point in the past. Um, so, um, yes, in the past they refused and their refusal is now complete. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Past action with point in time completion. That's exactly it. That's exactly it, First Fish. That's right. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so that's, that's the Avari are defined. So th we get, this, you know, more, more explanation of the connotations of what Ba or Abba means as a negation, right? And it is clearly not a neutral, we are merely unwilling, right? It is like, at a point, we have defined. We are we are defined by the fact that at a point in in the past, we refused to do what others wished, or urged, or we prohib or prohibition of some action by others, right? Even the fact that the avari, the implication that perhaps, the avari, might have tried to keep the others from going, right? That there that there was again an active resentment there, right? Um. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll do a little bit more. I got to stop at some point because, again, no way we're going to finish tonight and uh, we can finish up next time. But let's do one more. Um, this I found fun for some particular reasons, but uh, in a number of old compounds, uh, the suffix quen, plural queni, was combined with noun or adjective stems to denote habitual occupations or functions, or to describe those having some notable permanent quality, as the suffix man in English, but without distinction of sex, in horseman, seaman, workman, nobleman, etc. So in Quenya, roquen means horseman or rider, kiriaquen uh, means shipman or sailor, arquen means a noble. These words belong to everyday speech and have no special reference to elves. They were freely applied to other incarnates, such as men or dwarves, when the Eldar became acquainted with them. Okay, so several interesting things here. First of all, note that uh, there is a gender neutrality here. So he says it works like how in English we add man at the end in order to indicate, like, that person is a horseman, right? Um, uh, so it's, it's very like that. Quen, it means person, like horse person. Right, um, because in English the man suffix is gendered, right? Um, and his point is so that the quen suffix is not gendered; uh, it can apply to anyone um, in uh, in Quenya. Um, but so several things. So, but notice quen that word it's it's from quendi. Right, what they called themselves, and in the Silmarillion we are taught that Quendi means those who spoke with tongues, right? Um, speaking people, and we're told that they called themselves elves, like they called themselves Quendi, um, and um, so this gets used like um, the word folk or the word person. It suggests that it's the the fact that it is. Um, not gender specific already implies a kind of genericness to it, right? Um, and then that gets that genericness gets expanded, right? Um, 
when we're told, and this is a new thing that we're not told in the published Silmarillion, that this word, quen, queni, this root, the stem rather, no, not stem, the suffix, quen, queni, um, uh, and therefore, presumably, the root, quendi, becomes generalized. They use it of themselves because they're the only ones that they know who talk. But it becomes, they freely apply it to other incarnates. Um, and they use it generally. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, now, the, here's one of the other things that this made me think of. So this is just an interesting note, you know, that um, where in the published Silmarillion it implies that Quendi is only elves that they use this of like everybody. So that's interesting. Um, one of the things that couldn't I couldn't help but be reminded of was the Hobbit. Actually, um, Tolkien uses um, confusingly, confusingly. Um, Tolkien uses the word man neutrally. Um, in The Hobbit, Tolkien applies the word man freely to other incarnates. Um, in particular, and um, uh, Alyssa, I'm thinking of you here. Alyssa House Thomas, who's here, um, uh, helped me edit my uh, Exploring the Hobbit book a decade ago. Uh, we're getting old now. Uh, <laughs> we're all getting old, right? Um, gosh, that was what? 2011, I think, Alyssa, when we were working on that? Um, but anyway, um, Alyssa helped me to uh, edit my manuscript um, of the Exploring the Hobbit book, and we wrestled and wrestled with this. Um, like when the word elf gets capitalized and when it doesn't get capitalized because it does sometimes and not other times in the hobbit and what are the what are the patterns behind that um one of the um one of the things that um uh that uh, one of the passages that really jumps out when you're thinking about these questions is he will talk about the narrator of the hobbit talks about the raft men of the elves which gets really confusing um because it's clear that they are elves, but they're called men on more than one occasion, but like the raft men of the elves. So the word raft men is used in English to describe those elves. Um, and it's, again, it's a, it's a strange, um, uh, it's a strange moment because it seems like, why is he confusing whether these are humans or whether they're elves? But when I read this paragraph, I'm like, oh, well, now I get it. You see what he's doing? He calls them the raft men of the elves because he's translating. You know, I don't know what the quenya for raft is. It's presumably not kirya. I mean, I don't think they're kirya quen. They're not shipmen, of, but there's probably a different word for raft, right? Um, but um, whatever the quenya word for raft is, it's that quen. It's the the raft quen of the king, right? Of the of of the elven king, and so he translates that into English using the man suffix, just as he explains here. So he calls them the raftmen of the elves, um, conveying this con this quen concept, but without um, uh, explaining it and thereby confusing lots and lots of people. Yes, I see you guys discussing. Um, 
uh, Kiria Quen and does Kiria, um, which apparently means ship, right? Um, does that um, does that have anything to do with Kirden, the shipwright's name? I can't imagine that it doesn't. Um, uh, there are lots of examples, as Chad is pointing out. Uh, Kiryatar is a shipmaster, um, uh, uh, and the name of a Numenorean admiral. Yes, exactly. Um, so we can see that Kirya root, uh, master of ships. Um, but um, but yeah, is that connected with Kirdan? Um, I, I have to think so. Which came first? Right? Um, do they call these things Kir? You know, uh, uh, you know, they call shipmen uh, masters of ships, uh, Kirya, Quen, in homage to Kirdan, the shipwright, or like w- w- which came first, Kirdan's name or the job? Right? Um, is uh, is he named after shipwriting, or is shipwriting named after him? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but. Um, uh, that's uh, I think uh, I think an interesting, a really fascinating question. And by the way, that is exactly the kind of question that I think Tolkien would have loved to know that people were asking and debating about. Right? I don't think he would have been enormously pleased to see people uh, engaging in long and pointless, um, silly debates and discussions about the eagles carrying the ring to Mount Doom. Um, but I think he would absolutely have loved people to go through and formulate philological debates on the question of which came first, Kierden's name or the name of his job. Um, you know, Kierden's name or title, which came first and which influenced which. Um, that is precisely the kind of debate that he would have heartily encouraged, I believe. And why um, uh, and why uh, and, and a discussion which I have, to which I have myself very, very little to contribute. Um, but um, anyway, all right. I'm going to stop there because I have to stop somewhere. We shall resume with more fun with uh, uh, the roots of words and the stories that emerge from them uh, next time. And next time, doggone it, we are going, in fact, to finish The War of the Jewels. Session 18 shall be the last. I am... Uh, I am I am now completely convinced nothing shall stop us from finishing next time. All right. Um, thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks, as always, for joining me. So one more session next week, which will be, um, what is it, 31st, last day of, uh, uh, of August. And then we'll be off, we'll skip two weeks, and then we'll come back on the 20th for... Um, uh, for the uh, for till we have faces, uh, don't forget tomorrow night, Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern time, I'm going to do my summer update about the really huge and exciting things that are happening at Signum. Uh, so thanks very much. See you tomorrow, I hope. Uh, and if not, I'll see you guys next week. Thanks. Bye now.